Our food system is broken. Cheap junk food lines the shelves of our supermarkets. Fast food restaurants line the commercial districts of our towns and cities. Our farmers are pressured to grow more, but settle for less when they sell. Our family farms are almost gone. Only the giant factory farms are making money. Cheap food is making us sick, causing serious lifelong illnesses and premature death. Our healthcare system is straining under the pressure, and healthcare costs are draining our personal finances as well as our economy. This is the sad state of America's food system today, and this is Green Street. Good morning and welcome to Green Street. Doug and Patty Wood and our network of scientists, medical professionals, researchers, authors, educators, and activists all here on Tuesday mornings to help you understand what in the world is going on and how you and your family can have a better, safer, and healthier life on this increasingly toxic planet. Today, our Green Street show is all about food and how pretty much every environmental issue is tied in some way to the things we eat. As Patty said, the system is definitely broken, and while you may not see it when you look around, that's because you may not realize how things are intertwined and how the things we eat influence not only how you feel and how long you will live, but also geopolitical strategies, the world's economy, and even issues of war and peace. On our show today, we'll be joined by one of the smartest and most effective activists in the food movement, and we'll hear all about our food system and what we can do to protect and improve it. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street, but first, here's Patty with the Green Street News. I've got two interesting articles. The first one is titled, Hot Roads and Roofs Send Harmful Pollution into the Air. This was written by Brian Benkowski and published in Environmental Health News on September 3rd. We all know cars and trucks spew pollution into the air, but it turns out what's underneath their tires do as well. Asphalt, a petroleum product used on roads and roofs, is a significant source of harmful chemicals that end up contributing to ozone and particulate matter pollution, according to a study published today in Science Advances. The researchers found the emissions from asphalt are highest on hot, sunny days. While producing asphalt is a known source of pollutants such as particulate matter, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxides, carbon monoxide, and volatile organic compounds, the asphalt industry has said pollution from applied asphalt is negligible. The findings are important as most states and cities have tackled combustion sources of air pollution such as cars and power plants, but have neglected to take asphalt emissions into account. Asphalt at typical application and in-use temperatures emits a complex mixture of organic compounds that span a wide volatility range, the authors wrote. The researchers took samples of fresh asphalt and heated them to different temperatures, from 100 degrees Fahrenheit to 392 degrees Fahrenheit, finding that as the asphalt heated up, emissions rose. Emissions actually doubled when temperatures increased from 104 degrees Fahrenheit to 140 degrees Fahrenheit. From 140 degrees Fahrenheit to 284 degrees Fahrenheit, emissions increased about 70% for every 20-degree jump. When road asphalt was exposed to solar radiation, which mimics sunlight, emissions increased 300%, said Piyush Kerr, a researcher and graduate student at Yale University and lead author of the study. 
Asphalt releases organic compounds that are precursors to secondary organic aerosols, which contribute to particulate matter pollution, which you know as PM 2.5. And this consists of toxic airborne particles much tinier than the width of a human hair and is linked to a variety of health impacts, including respiratory and heart problems, birth impacts, and altered brain development for children. Such emissions are important because asphalt is so widespread. Cities' total surface areas are, on average, 45% paved. The U.S. alone uses about 27 million metric tons of liquid asphalt each year, according to a recent report. Drew Gentner, an associate professor of chemical and environmental engineering at Yale, said that asphalt is just one source of secondary aerosols in cities, as personal care and cleaning products are other common sources. Asphalt is another important non-combustion source of emissions that contributes to secondary organic aerosols production among a class of sources that scientists in the field are actively working to constrain better. Wow. This can't come as a real surprise. I mean, no. you know, have you, you've been yes. with their you paving. Yes, you can smell it when and, they're paving. And it's, it's pretty unbelievable. toxic. And it's, yep. and it's pretty toxic for a couple of days after. Yep. I yep. just wonder if it, I mean, certainly your ability to smell it goes down after a couple of days. Doesn't the volatility go down after a couple of days? Apparently, what they're saying, apparently not, is that when it when it heats up again, mm. that that, from what's, that, from that volatility really increases pretty exponentially. The other thing that's interesting is that we've always said that you know, when we have talked on this show about synthetic turf fields, which use ground mm. up tires mm. yeah. as a cushioning material, um, that it's not just the tires themselves, but it's all the chemicals that they pick up from sure. the asphalt, from the roadbeds. Mm. And so here you have it, yeah. you know, that it's a really important source, you know, contributing to these, uh, you know, kind of dangerous air pollutants. Wow. All right. Interesting. Yeah. It's it's well, it's what... always interesting to put together the pieces of the puzzle. Yeah. You know, and yeah. to and to and to hear people, you know, saying, Wow, this is something that we never thought about before, but wow, look at this. Okay, what else? Okay. You got? And this is another one. This is another wow article. Um, the title is Microplastics in Farm Soils, a Growing Concern. This was also published in Environmental Health News uh, by Kate S. Peterson. Uh, dated August 31st. Mary Beth Kirkham hadn't studied microplastics when she was invited to co-edit a new book about microplastics in the environment, but something stood out to her about the existing research. Kirkham's expertise is in water and plant relations and heavy metal uptake, so she decided to conduct her own research in which she cultivated wheat plants exposed to microplastics, cadmium, and both microplastics and cadmium. Then she compared these plants to those grown without either additive. She chose cadmium because it's poisonous, carcinogenic, and ubiquitous in the environment due to human activity. It's shed from batteries and car tires and is naturally found in the phosphate rock used to make agricultural fertilizers. Cadmium is everywhere, said Kirkham. At the end of the experiment, she sent her wheat plants off for analysis, and validating previous reports, the plants grown with microplastics were more cadmium-contaminated. The plastics really were acting as the vector for uptake of the cadmium, she said. I think people just haven't felt that microplastic uptake by plants is an issue. It just hasn't been in the public's eye. 
Microplastics, loosely defined as plastic pieces smaller than five millimeters across, or roughly the size of a small grain of rice, have made their mark on both the global ecosystem and the popular consciousness, famously killing seabirds and raining down on wilderness areas. And while the impacts of ocean microplastics have been the subject of significant media and scientific attention, researchers say that most microplastics are actually accumulating on land, including agricultural areas. Microplastics arrive on farms through processed sewage sludge used for fertilizer, plastic mulches, and are even intentionally added as slow-release fertilizers and protective seed coatings. In just the last few years, an uptick in research has uncovered alarming potential impacts of this contamination on all aspects of agricultural systems from soil quality to human health. Microplastics can also enter agricultural soils through the degradation of plastic materials used by farmers. Kirkham said that in the 1950s, plastic covering replaced glass in greenhouses. Plastic mulches were also popularized, becoming commonplace across much of the world. These mulches, sheets of plastic laid out on the ground to suppress weeds, warm the soil, and retain moisture, are challenging to recycle and costly to dispose of. According to Kirkham, farmers may end up piling up on their land or burning them to avoid disposal costs. In some areas, the mulches are simply left to break down into the soil. The full impact of microplastics contamination in agricultural soils, particularly as concentrations increase with time, is unknown. However, studies have shown that microplastics possess physical and chemical characteristics that have the potential to alter soil bulk density, microbial communities, water holding capacity, and other properties that influence plant development. A team of scientists in Italy reported earlier this year that they had detected microplastics in supermarket produce, including carrots, lettuce, broccoli, potatoes, apples, and pears. The researchers wrote that they had found the most microplastics contamination in apples and the least in lettuce, speculating that the perennial nature of a fruit tree allowed microplastics to accumulate more than in annual crops. With clear and uncontrolled pathways into human food systems, ingestion of microplastics by humans is practically unavoidable, but the consequences of ingestion are as yet unknown. Much more research is needed to paint a complete picture of the scope and impacts of microplastic pollution of agricultural soils, but in the meantime, plastics will continue to accumulate. This is a kind of irreversible contamination, said one of the Italian researchers. There's no way to remediate this kind of contamination at the scale of agricultural soils. This is very distressing because what we're, you know, even organic farmers are using plastic cover. Oh, yeah, we were just at an organic farm yesterday afternoon. We walked the entire farm. It was what? It was only six plus acres, but nevertheless, it was an organic farm that produces a lot of food and actually has a CSA and actually, you know, sells at farmer's markets as an organic farm. And they're using plastic mulch at that farm that we that we walked Plastic in the carrots, plastic in the lettuce. Uh Uh-huh. Holy caruso. Broccoli, potatoes, apples, and pears. Interesting Uh that the perennial fruits had more contamination yeah. well, more than time the annuals. To pick it up. Yeah, more time to pick it up. Okay. Thanks, Patty. But before I let you go, can we talk a little bit about the um, glyphosate roundup situation in New York City? I think last week we had a program 
uh, where we talked to the author of a book who had written all about glyphosate and all about Monsanto. Right, the and, politics and, and, and the yeah, whole but we thing, never, right? I, I never and really, the cover-up, yeah, right. But I never really got to tie it to the New York City situation, and I want to make clear that people listening to this program have an opportunity to do something about this right, right. here in New and York. And you, you really do actually have an opportunity right now because there is a piece of legislation that is sitting in the speaker's office. It is intro 1524, and it will eliminate or ban the use of all chemical pesticides in New York City parks. One of those chemicals will be the herbicide glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, which we talked so much about last week on our show. But this is a chemical that we know is a carcinogen. It is a neurotoxin. It has you know, harmful reproductive effects, and it's very harmful to our pollinators, which we know are at, you know, tremendous risk right now. Uh, So we don't need this. We have a beautiful park, Battery Park in Lower Manhattan, that is a perfect example of how you can create a beautiful park and maintain this beautiful park without the use of any chemical pesticides or any chemical inputs. And so we are really promoting the adoption of this landmark legislation. We have 34 co-sponsors on the legislation, which means that if Speaker Corey Johnson brings this to the floor of the city council for a vote, it will pass. That's a big deal for all residents of New York City. So you can call Speaker Corey Johnson's office, and Doug will give you that information right now. 212-564-7757 is Corey Johnson's number. If you would like to see New York City get rid of Monsanto's glyphosate Roundup pesticide in our New York City parks so that our kids can play safely and our dogs can be walked safely and our our birds and all other animals can be safe, uh, give them a call and say, hey, Please pass legislation. It's called Intro 1524. Try to remember that or write it down. Intro 1524. Speaker Corey Johnson, please bring this piece of legislation to a vote. Great. Okay. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. You are what you eat. Not only that, your life is determined by what you eat. And not just your life, but the lives of people all around the world. It's not just about what you eat personally, of course, but what everyone else eats, too. Our combined food decisions drive world politics, enrich multinational corporations, cause farmers to fall into bankruptcy, result in tremendous pollution, cause skyrocketing rates of diabetes, heart disease, and cancer, and accelerate our already perilous climate condition. So the next time you open your mouth to put food into it, think about what you're about to hear from our friend and colleague, Ronnie Cummins. Ronnie is the founder and international director of the Organic Consumers Association, an organization that's been fighting for common sense food policy for more than 25 years. Patty and I spoke with Ronnie yesterday, and we asked him first to talk about how the Organic Consumers Association got started. Yeah, the uh, Organic Consumers Association came out of the uh, organic, farmer and consumer movement, uh, specifically in 1997 and 1998, the U.S. Department of Agriculture tried to change organic standards and say that genetic engineering and toxic sewage sludge and 
and food irradiation would be allowed under organic. So there was a huge backlash and grassroots movement, and uh, Organic Consumers Association arose out of that in 1998. And so uh, we've campaigned ever since then against industrial agriculture and GMOs and factory farms and and, uh, promoted organic and now organic and regenerative uh, food and farming. Yes, so, well, we can thank you, number one, for being at the head of that major initiative to keep... To keep organic organic. To keep organic organic. I mean, I remember remember being part of that and writing letters and making phone calls and doing all that stuff as well. And it was uh, critically important to have a kind of a, an, well, I don't know if you were formally associated by that at, at that time, but to have real leaders in this movement. Uh, so, so thank you for that. I know that they're still pushing. The industry is still, say. they're still pushing to allow this, allow this, allow this, allow this. Uh, and I hope that, you know, if it goes that far, that we will also get that opportunity to, uh, to make our voices heard. Yeah, I think until we get one of our own people as Secretary of Agriculture, in an administration that actually believes in organic and regenerative farming, we're going to have to keep fighting these battles for organic integrity. Uh, Some of us were very hopeful we were going to get uh, Bernie Sanders Mm. in particular, and because he was articulating uh, a pro-organic, pro-regenerative farming platform. But now we're we're stuck again with... uh, uh, you know, a mainstream Democrat who's likely to be the next president. So we're going to have to pressure from day one to make sure that we have a U.S. Department of Agriculture secretary who, uh, you know, represents family farmers and organic and regenerative practices. Yeah, and we have a particular interest in this. Our our son-in-law and daughter are organic farmers. They farm about 120 acres out on the end of Long Island and a 70-acre parcel in Vermont. Uh, so, um, so we are we're 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 very much aware of of this on a on a very personal note. Hey, Ronnie, for our audience members who may not be completely familiar with the term regenerative agriculture, can you just give us a quick overview of what that is? Yeah, regenerative agriculture is simply the latest stage of organic. Uh, as our understanding of the climate crisis has increased, what we now understand is that. Uh, regenerative agriculture that sequesters uh, excess carbon dioxide from the atmosphere into the the uh, plants and grasses and soils and trees and doesn't release nitrous oxide and methane and CO2 is a major tool along with alternative energy to turn things around. Uh, I wrote a book earlier, came out earlier this year called Grassroots Rising, where I make the case that that we can achieve zero net emissions in the United States in 10 years, like the Green New Deal calls for, if we combine uh, a move to alternative energy and radical energy conservation with uh, a transformation of food and farming to where we get a, a quarter or so of our farmers and ranchers adopting not just organic but regenerative uh, farming practices. Let me just talk to you a little bit about a little controversy. You know, some organic farmers are a little concerned about this new uh, regenerative agriculture movement. Uh, and obviously, you know, what, what you have just described is essential. 
for helping to pull down the amount of CO2 in our atmosphere. But there's no legal definition of regenerative agriculture. And they're a little concerned that that people are going to say, oh, you know, we grew this, you know, with a, a farm that is engaging in in regenerative agriculture. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're not using pesticides and GMOs and whatever. Have you heard, gotten any pushback on this? Well, that's why Organic Consumers Association, we always use the terminology organic and regenerative. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, because obviously uh, corporations now understand that the climate emergency is a front burner issue uh, and that their practices are under fire and they better pretend to be doing the right thing. So a bunch of big corporations are now saying, oh, we're going to move to regenerative practices. Uh But when you look at at who they are and their track record and what most of their uh, products are and their foods, uh, you can tell who the greenwashers are and who the, the sure. real people are. Yeah, but but, but, can, the, but can the general public tell that? That's the, I think that's the big well, question. We, we tell people to uh, do your homework, you know, know your farmer if you uh, can buy from a farmer's market or from a CSA or buying club. Uh, that's the best way. But if you're buying in a retail store, look for that uh, organic label. Yeah. And then in the ca- in the case the only the only, uh, in the case of meat and animal products, uh, especially meat, uh, USDA organic standards are uh, not as high as they should be. So there are other, like American Grass Fed Association, for one in particular, it will tell you that that means that meat those animals ate no grain. Uh, and many, many uh, AGA-certified ranchers are also organic. So organic and regenerative uh, is the way forward. And some of these other labels like biodynamic, you know, biodynamic means organic and biodynamic. Exactly. It's always been, it's always been the highest form mm-hmm. of organic certification up until now. Uh, but so now you... You know, should look for things that are regenerative as well as organic if you can, and buy, if at all possible, local and regional uh, products. Ronnie, um, I, I know the Organic Consumers Association has a, a boycott in place right now. Boycott Big Meat. Tell us yeah. a, about that. Yeah, we're trying to call attention to the fact that most Americans, what they're consuming is factory farm meat and animal products. And, yeah, we have 5 to 10% market share for organic and regenerative, but that's not good enough. The main problem with uh, U.S. Uh, agriculture, industrial agriculture, is that most of our resources, most of the land goes into producing either the industrial feed for the feedlots and the factory farms or, you know, the animals graze a bit before they go into these factory farms. We've got to change this. If we're going to ever sequester enough carbon to start to reverse global warming, which, of course, will require a transformed energy system and energy conservation. But if we're ever going to transform American agriculture, it means first and foremost getting the animals out of those factory farms and feedlots and back onto the land and getting herbivores to eat what they're supposed to eat, which is 100% grass, uh, and then getting... Other animals, you know, the pigs and chickens and so on that are, that are omnivores, get them out in pasture. 
And, you know, part of this is Americans not only uh, consume 95% of what they're consuming as factory farm, but they're also consuming too much of it. The average American consumes 222 pounds of meat mm. a year. And, I mean, you can ask any nutritionist, mm. any natural health person, uh, is that a good amount of meat to eat on the average? And they'd say, no, cut that by two-thirds at mm -hmm. least. Yeah. So if you're going to eat meat, uh, eat it in moderation and make sure that when you do eat meat or consume uh, animal products, that it is organic and regeneratively raised. And that is, uh, you know, requires a little homework on the part of consumers. But I must say, since the advent of this uh, pandemic uh, at the beginning of the year, we've seen a sharp increase in sales of organic food and in grass-fed and pastured meat and animal products. And that's a good sign. It's also a good sign that people are learning how to cook at home again. <laughs> yeah, that's big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Instead of eating out so much. I mean, I'm sorry that so many uh, restaurant workers and food chain workers uh, are losing their jobs and they're not getting uh, the proper amount of unemployment and supplemental money that they need to get by. But we got to fight for that and we got to create a food system where the workers who want to work in the food system, uh, you know, whether they're farm workers or restaurant workers or truck drivers or warehouse workers or small farmers, that they get, uh, they're able to do this in a socially uh, responsible, regenerative manner and also get paid a fair wage. And our food system, the 20 million people who work in our food chain are horribly exploited at this point. Uh, almost half of them can't even afford organic food, even though they know that organic food is better, far better than the cheap commodity food that's that's available. That they're helping to produce too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I know this is a it's a it's basically a, a a broken system that you're describing, and it is heartening that people are staying home and learning to cook or going back to cooking for themselves and that when they're in the store or when they have time now to go to maybe a farmer's market or join a CSA and so on, that they are beginning to see the difference in the quality of that food and hopefully their health. While we're on animals, I think whether or not they're pasture raised or whether they're from a, a you know a factory farm, the methane from you know these animals is is a major contributor to uh, climate to change. climate change. Yeah, conventional livestock management, uh, where you graze the animals uh, usually not very well, but where they then go to a feedlot or a factory farm, uh, is an enormous cause of methane release. But what we have realized, and science is now pointing this, is that an animal uh, herbivore that's properly grazing on healthy pasture or rangeland, something different is going on there. There's a type of bacteria called methanotrophic bacteria that only exists in large quantities in properly managed pasture or rangelands. Mm. In other words, if it's got cover crops all the time, a variety of biodiversity and so on, that naturally has these methanotrophic bacteria. What these methanotrophic bacteria do is when the animal is grazing, and of course if they're grazing as opposed to being in a feedlot or a factory farm, their nose is close to the ground most of the time. 
So, yes, they're still belching out methane, but the methanotropic uh, bacteria actually consume the methane. And so you have a, uh, a balance there. But if what you're doing is animals are, you know, standing in crap in a feedlot up to their knees, eating from a trough, uh, genetically engineered grains, they are belching out methane full blast. And you can measure this. You can measure mm. this amount of methane. Say if you measure it in a dairy barn, and then you have uh, equipment where you're measuring it uh, out in the field, uh, in a field where, you know, properly managed regenerative pasture, uh, you can see the difference. There's a farm in Hudson, New York, that's a perfect example of this, Stonehouse, Stonehouse Farm. Uh, where they're actually measuring this uh, in conjunction with Woods Hole Laboratory in Massachusetts and showing. So if we are going to get our methane emissions under control, and of course most methane emissions come from fracking and natural gas Mm -hmm. and the oil industry, but if we're going to get our methane emissions under control, which we have to do, we have got to get rid of this factory farm feedlot system get animals back on the land, and get our pastures and rangelands back in order. In the world today, there's twice as much pasture land and rangeland, there's 8 billion acres across the world, as there is cropland, which there's 4 billion acres of. And so it's extremely important. Most of this pasture land and rangeland around the world is not suitable for growing crops. So the argument mm-hmm, that you mm-hmm. hear from some quarters that we got to get rid of all livestock, uh, well, you know, a billion people across the world depend on livestock and herding for their survival. So we just need to help people do it right, mm-hmm. uh, and we can. And if you're a vegan, uh, you need to keep in mind uh, that, yes, it's a great idea to not consume any factory food, uh, factory farm meat or animal products, but you've got to make sure that the vegan products you're consuming are not coming from industrial agriculture because actually the nitrous oxide from chemical fertilizers is worse than the methane. Uh, And so we need to be very clear about there's regenerative farms of producing vegan food and there are degenerative ways of producing it. Most of it is produced in a degenerative manner. The same thing for meat and animal products. There are degenerative ways to manage livestock, uh, and then there are regenerative, and we need to get that, get that clear. Can I go back a little bit, and I want to talk about tearing up habitat, and I want to try to turn this into a conversation about the coronavirus and factory farm systems, which you've just been talking about, but we're going into places where we shouldn't be going and picking up viruses from wild animals in areas where we're wanting to put cattle to graze. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's important to everybody right now. It's on our minds. Where did this coronavirus actually come from? Did it come from a wild animal? Did a a domesticated animal or a, a factory farmed animal, you know, pick this up? Who knows? Can you talk a little bit about what you know about this. Sure. I mean, there's mounting evidence, scientific and legal, that this particular uh, virus that that has set off the COVID-19 came from a laboratory. 
the virus was genetically engineered. It was uh, manipulated to be more infectious than the bat coronaviruses should be or are in nature. There's, Mm -hmm. you know, six, eight years of published peer-reviewed articles on how scientists in the United States and China in particular have been manipulating bat coronaviruses to make them more infectious and more virulent. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do this under the excuse that, hey, this is for medical reasons, this is for biosafety reasons. And one of the reasons they say that is it's against the law. It's against international law to produce chemical and biological weapons. There's a convention that bans that. And so if you're going to continue doing that research, like the uh, U.S. Department of Defense uh, and DARPA uh, and others have done, you've got to claim that it's for vaccines or biomedical research or whatever. But I think the public understands that scientists sitting in labs, and there's thousands of them, making viruses and bacteria and fungus more virulent, this is risky business. And when you look at, uh, you know, the United States, we have a couple of accidents every week in our genetic engineering bio labs uh, for viruses. Uh, most of them, fortunately, don't go that far. But the what happened over in China, we see the consequences of, of this. And so we need to stop this kind of reckless science But we also need to stop the destruction of animal habitat uh, around the world because some of the pandemics that have occurred uh, over the last hundred years did originate in animals in the wild. Most of them did not, unfortunately. If you look very closely at the records, it is uh, a lot of these lab releases have been a major part. Lab releases are, in the case of HIV, Uh, There's now more and more evidence that contaminated vaccines that people, the vaccine manufacturers didn't know they were contaminated, but they were contaminated uh, with a monkey virus. Uh, And this this was injected into hundreds of thousands of people in Africa. And when the HIV epidemic began, people didn't realize that. You know, other things, Lyme's disease. If you look at this new book out called Baseless, B-A-S-E-L-E-S-S, A History of Chemical and Biological Warfare in the United States, it is a very sad history to see that going all the way back to the Second World War, we brought Nazi germ warfare scientists and Japanese germ warfare scientists into uh, into the CIA, into these operations, into the military, And we started becoming the world leader in chemical and biological warfare. We used it in the Korean War against the North Koreans and the Chinese. We used it uh, in Cuba to try to destroy their economy. We worked hand-in-hand with the apartheid regime in South Africa, who used it on the liberation fighters and then helped the Rhodesian uh, uh, government use it against the Zimbabwe fighters, and so on. So there's a very long history. We used it against the Soviet Union as well. So there's a very long history of people using chemical and biological warfare. That's the reason there's a treaty uh, supposedly to stop this. 
It's really fascinating and a little bit scary. So let's talk a little bit about the destruction of the rainforest around the world. I know there are some estimates that we're burning like 200,000 acres of rainforest every day. Is that all for meat production for the fast food restaurants? Well, there's two major factors. Genetically engineered soybeans production. This is especially in the Amazon area where you whack down the rainforest, you graze cattle for a couple of years, but then you plant the GMO soybeans. So those can be sold to China and Europe and the U.S. for animal feed in the factory farm. The other thing is the palm oil, which mm -hmm. is destroying the rainforest in uh, Southeast Asia. And if we don't stop uh, the destruction of these rainforests, first of all, we're not going to be able to halt the climate disaster. And second of all, we're going to see more and more diseases emerging from these areas as they have more and more contact with people. But this notion that it's the ignorant bush meat farmers in Africa are the ignorant traders and wild animals in China that started this pandemic is ridiculous. And we need to stop listening to the scientists who actually get paid to do this kind of research, primarily by the U.S. military and other militaries, but secondarily by Big Pharma. And we need to listen to the independent scientists who are not being paid, who are not compromised, and listen to what they say. And uh, that, like a recent article in the Boston Magazine was very good, uh, pointing out that any virologist studying the topic knows full well what happened, but they're not going to say anything because they're going to lose their uh, cushy jobs if yeah, they do, yeah, and their career yeah. will be ruined. Right. So this is, you know, I've been involved in the peace movement in the United States and worldwide for 50 years, and we've done our best to stop wars. We've done our best to bring about global nuclear disarmament. Uh, but we did not do an adequate job educating people about how chemical and biological weapons are also weapons of mass destruction, mm -hmm. and we've got to get these under control. Part of the reason why we haven't done this is that it has been shrouded in secrecy. You know, the yeah. CIA and these other institutions... Uh, do not want you to know what they're doing with their secret budgets and their slush funds. But believe me, the people on the ground in Cuba, they know, they know. what yeah. happened. Yeah. They know. The, the people, you know, the people in Korea, they know. And that's one of the things that scares the hell out of me is that, like, hey, anyone who wants to nowadays can set up a a lab and genetically engineer viruses and bacteria to produce these super virulent uh, microorganisms. And, mm. and, you know, it's like, do we think yeah. the North Koreans and the Iranians aren't paying attention to mm. what's going on? Yeah. If yeah, we sure. back them into a corner badly enough, I would not be surprised if they're going to fight back. And so... We need to get this, we need to get a grip on this, you know, and it's not just chemical and biological warfare. I mean, the climate situation, do we actually believe we're going to solve the climate crisis without the cooperation of Russia and China and Iran 
you know, and all these other countries that we uh, have designated as competitors or enemies, we've got to get real about this and sit down and say, look, we have differences, we have fundamental differences, but we also have common problems and common goals, and let's solve these things. Yeah. And one of them is put a halt to this insane you know, uh, experimentation, they call it gain of function. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, they have, a, they have a, a, a gain of function research. It sounds great. And, and I think that Obama, when he was in office, that he defunded our funding for that, for the Wuhan lab work. And then when... He did. Yeah. He did a, temp, he did a partial and temporary uh, moratorium on funding these research, this research in the U.S. Because it was the so dangerous. Was because it was so dangerous, we had had a series of accidents in the U.S. I mean, USA Today pointed out that that our military labs sent anthrax uh, all over the country to all these other labs that wasn't deactivated, that supposedly was. But And then all these scientists signed a letter to Obama saying, halt this. But the problem is, Fauci was in charge uh, in the NIH under Obama, just like he was under Clinton, under under Bush, now under Trump. And what happened was that this dangerous research that was being carried out at University of North Carolina and yeah. Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, uh, and other places, they simply shifted it over to the Wuhan lab, you know, and they continued mm. funding it, mm. yeah. you know. So the U.S., the U.S. military... The U.S. National Institutes of Health, the Chinese military, and the Chinese government were the uh, partners in this research weaponizing viruses uh, in these Chinese labs. And that's the reason why the cover-up has been so thorough. It's because no one wants to admit, I mean, Trump may uh, use the rhetoric of, well, the, the Chinese virus or the Kung flu. But you've never heard Trump say, oh, yeah, we, we restarted. We were funding, funding them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We and you, you'll never hear him say that, oh, the U.S. military uh, funds 90% of this research because they are interested in weapons, you yeah. know, yeah. chemical and biological weapons. And you, you don't have, you know, I mean, look, there's evidence that the Wuhan lab, I mean, all of a sudden, cell phone activity came to a halt, you know, last October, a year ago, uh, last October, and there were these roadblocks set up all around Wuhan. I mean, you know, yeah. it's like, why isn't our CIA confirming this? You're telling me they don't have satellites photographing those labs 24-7? You're telling me they don't have a record of cell phone traffic? You know, it's like, give me a, give me a break. Yeah. The deep state, the deep state, which exists, has existed since the Second World War, uh, does not want you to know what they are doing. Uh, and Trump doesn't want you to know what they're doing. Uh, and let's hope that once Biden and his administration are in the White House, you know, that they will listen to reason. Uh, and put a halt to these experiments, which, 
it'd be one thing if they were producing life-saving vaccines, you know, and pharmaceutical drugs that benefited humanity. Humans, uh, yeah, you, benefited humanity but, but, instead of, yeah. They're not doing anything but making good salaries to tinker in labs with genetic engineering. I mean, some of us have been warning for 30 years. I mean, I remember with the start of our campaign against anti of the bovine growth hormone in 1992, you know, we had a whole group called the Biotechnology Working Group with scientists and public interest activists together. And we were listening to what the molecular biologists have been saying since the mid-'70s, which is that genetic engineering uh, is a very, uh, very interesting from a scientific standpoint, a technical standpoint, but it's also very dangerous. With genetic engineering, you can do things like change American agriculture to where, you know, nearly every crop being grown out there has is sprayed with Roundup, you know, because you can make more money if you're a Cargill or, a, you know, General Mills. But also, scientists have been warning us since the Assimilar conference in 1975 the biologists and the molecular biologists said, hey, this is a dual-edged sword. Genetic engineering, if it's applied to viruses, for example, and bacteria, if you use it to genetically engineer humans, this stuff is very, very dangerous, you know, and we need to keep it under control. Yeah. Now, the scientists promised us that if we didn't regulate them strongly, that they would... Uh, take care of things themselves, that they have a, you know, they have ethical beliefs, too. They've got families and so on. But as we can see, they have not done that, you know, and they are not going to do that until the public forces them to. Yeah, and the, the deep state and the CIA are not going to go away, you know, unless we make them go away. Uh, and that's got to be one of the things we tell the new administration in Washington is that we don't need a CIA. We don't need a clan, clandestine destabilization 24-7 of countries all over the world. We need democracy, and we need to get real about solving the problems. The climate emergency, as people know, at least in the back of their minds, is going to make the deaths from this pandemic look like a, you know, a, a brief dress rehearsal. The apocalypse is coming down on us if we don't turn things around. And I'm an optimist. I think we are going to turn things around. I think the truth is going to come out about COVID-19. I think the public are going to react. And I think but we've got to look at the deeper problems of the way that we produce energy, the way that we, uh, you know, intimidate the world with our military prowess to retain economic control. we got to deal with these deeper issues, which, you know, we started talking about in the 60s, uh, but we haven't, uh, we haven't been successful yet, but I think we're going to be. 
Well, that's very hopeful. Coming from somebody who knows so much about the things that are so wrong. Yeah, that, that was going to be um, my question was yeah. to whether you were optimistic or not. Exactly. I mean, we've, we've covered a lot of territory here this morning with serious, serious problems that are going to require a lot of a lot of public support. And I know that's the focus of, of your organization is to, to get public support for that. And you've been doing great at that. Can we do this without government help? And how do we push that lever? What is it that people can do that you think is the most effective way to, to drive change at the government level with our politicians who, you know, they're getting lots of money from these people. So how do we combat that? Well, I think, I think public awareness and action uh, in the marketplace and in the political arena are absolutely uh, essential. Uh, and we, we've got these Internet giants now, uh, Facebook and Twitter and Google, who think they know better than we do uh, what's right and what's wrong, and they can censor alternative information and so on. We're going to have to deal with that. What do you think the hope is for campaign finance reform? I mean, that's like, that's been, it's been I, I out think there. Campaign fi- you know, the problem with campaign finance reform, which, of course, we need to have, is that you have to have a Congress in place that would vote for it. Exactly. And so I want to see people work together to, to defeat people who take special interest money. And it's public record, uh, to some extent, who people are getting money from. So I'm just hopeful when people like Markey, you know, Senator Markey from Massachusetts, uh, a champion of the Green New Deal, is able to overcome the Democratic Party establishment, uh, Feinstein and them, and get reelected. Uh, these are encouraging signs. Uh, what is discouraging uh, is the fact that people are so polarized around issues that are secondary, uh, and they're not united uh, around the issues that are primary. So I think we're going to have to... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's such an important issue. I want to just stop you on that because that's so critical. People are polarized around things that are not that important, really, as far as, as, far as your health and your children and future generations and the, and the planet and all the other things that are just existential issues. Those are the things that that are not really polarizing, right? These are things that all humans yeah. need for survival. But you're right, we are polarized around issues that that are not existential issues. They're political issues, they're religious issues, you know, whatever. And, or, you know, we, we need to come together as a nation and as a world to understand that there are issues that, that we all agree on that we need to work together on. Yeah, I mean, once upon a time, I grew up in the South. Uh, I grew up in Southeast Texas. I grew up in the uh, populist tradition of Huey Long and the, and the rural populace. My grandparents were very active in Louisiana uh, around those issues. Uh, it used to be that the vanguard of the revolution in the U.S. was rural America and the South. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. yep. and what has happened? You know, what has happened? Uh, and we have to pay attention to this. The fourteen uh, percent of us live in rural America now. Eighty, eighty-six percent live in cities or suburban areas. But we must pay attention to issues like food and farming, uh, and the economic situation of rural communities, uh, because we are so darn polarized. 
the reason Trump carried rural America most places, he didn't carry my county uh, up here in Minnesota, but uh, he carried most rural counties because most rural voters didn't really see the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans when it comes to uh, food and farming issues and issues that affect rural America. Uh, and they didn't like uh, they didn't like Hillary. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. they, you know, Trump used a bunch of uh, rhetoric that uh, he didn't uh, come through with. But we've got to stop this. Urban politicians, progressives, leftists, we need to pay attention. Food, farming, rural issues, these are not secondary issues. You know, these are, you know, primary issues. This is a revolution. I mean, Bernie Sanders put it politely, a political revolution. That's uh, more polite than some of us uh, spoke in the 60s and early 70s. But we need a revolution. It's a matter of life or death. And I think we are going to we're going to go through some hard times in the next four months. Uh, this is going to be living hell to get through this. But we better come out on the other end with a determination that uh, we are going to solve these crises, the, the crises of racism, uh, the crises of the COVID-19, the pandemic, the chronic disease, and most importantly, the climate and political emergency that is global. You're listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our guest is Ronnie Cummins. He is the founder and the international director of the Organic Consumers Association on the web at organicconsumers.org. Ronnie, I can't thank you enough for joining us on Green Street. I feel like we could talk for a long, long time. I hope you'll come back and join us on another edition of our show. Thank you for your great work, and thank WBAI. So that's our show for today, America's Food Crisis with Ronnie Cummins. Before we go today, I wanted to mention how much we appreciate hearing from our listeners. We've gotten some nice feedback on the show, and while we don't have live call-ins at the moment, we are here at the other end of your email program, and we will respond if you write to us. Tell us how you like the show. Let us know what topics you think we should cover. You can reach us through our program website, which is www.greenstreetradio.com. That's Green Street Radio, all one word, greenstreetradio.com. And there you will find all of our past shows going back for a few years. I also want to thank those of you who have contributed to WBAI over the past few months. We are very appreciative of your support. And for those who just haven't quite gotten around to it, why not make today the day you finally cross this off your to-do list? I am a compulsive list maker, as Patty will tell you. I get up in the morning, make my coffee, and first thing I do is sit down and make a list of all the stuff I have to do. And you know how that feels when you have your list of things to do and there's one thing that just hangs on week after week. Uh, If that thing on your list is to make a donation to WBAI or to become a WBAI buddy, then why not make it today, Tuesday, September 29th, the day you finally stop thinking about it and do it. You can just go to the station website, which is WBAI.org, scroll down to the blue box with the two stick figures and click on that, follow a few prompts, and before you know it, you are a member of this historic progressive station, and you can cross it off your list. 
Thanks again to our great guest, Ronnie Cummins, and for all of his work that he's doing. Again, it's organicconsumers.org is his website. Also, thanks to our engineer, Michael G. Haskins, and all the people at WBAI who keep this remarkable radio station on the air. Free speech, community-supported radio in New York. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, please be safe, be well, and take care.